Gun to Mexico in Focus, hitting police reform head on with difficult conversations about culture change and racial inequality. This is the new civil rights movement. Uh, this is to possibly be the next uh, reconstruction. Plus, how we move beyond just talk and into action as we talk policing in 2020 and beyond. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. New Mexico is in some tough times from the COVID-19 pandemic to economic strife and civil unrest. 2020 has been full of challenges and those challenges have often brought out into the light many systemic injustices and failures. To change the tide, we all need to be willing to have difficult and challenging conversations. And that's the goal this week. We're talking about reforming policing in New Mexico and specifically here in Albuquerque, where the police department is still under a court approved settlement agreement with the Department of Justice over police misconduct dating back to before several high profile shootings in 2014. Our conversations this week are just a starting point and they are by no means the definitive discussions on APD reform, but we hope they get the ball rolling and be sure we will do more of this in the future with different voices and different perspectives. But we begin this week by looking at the state of the APD today and the status of the city's reform efforts. Welcome to a New Mexico in Focus special. Today is Friday, September 25th, 2020. And I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Say a special episode this week because we're going to do things a little different. The first thing you'll notice, no line panel this week. But we did have some things we wanted to talk about with some of our line folks. So we encourage you to go to our Facebook or YouTube page at New Mexico in Focus. We were joined by regulars Sophie Martin and Diane Snyder, former state senator, as well as political psychologist and author of the book, Your Voice, Your Vote, the one and only Martha Burke. Kick things off by talking about the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and a little bit about her legacy and the firestorm, politically speaking, that her death has set off this week in Washington, D.C. From there, we trans transition into a conversation about the naming rights uh, squabble that's going on once again at UNM, the second time that uh, a naming rights deal has ended before the contract was supposed to be completed. Uh, this time it's with DreamStyle. The names of the company have been pulled from the pit and the football stadium over what appears to be bit of a fight over money and some conditions and things. We'll talk about that as well as the upcoming election. Important story that uh, hasn't gotten a lot of attention in the last week. Almost 15,000 absentee ballots went out to folks in Grants County with the wrong first name on there. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And the Republican Party in New Mexico calling for a change of vendors, uh, which is pretty late in the game for that. So we'll hear what the folks have to say about that. But on the show this week, this is a heavy show and one that's going to take a lot of work and effort and patience on the behalf of you, the listener. But we feel like it's important, of course, in a time of COVID-19, a lot of our systemic failures um, in the state have been laid bare, especially in terms of racial inequality. And we here are dedicated to having those hard conversations 
being okay to just lean into those hard conversations. We know there's not a lot of consensus right now. People are very divided. This show is by no means meant to be the be-all, end-all conversation uh, on these issues, but it's a starting point. We'll continue it. We hope you get involved, give us suggestions. This week, we really wanted to focus in on police reform and specifically around the Albuquerque Police Department, which is still uh, in a consent decree, a court-approved settlement agreement with the Department of Justice after a series of high-profile shootings and police misconduct dating back to before 2014. That agreement was signed in 2014. We're on our second mayor under the consent decree, and we wanted to find out how we're doing and how we can really push to action on meaningful reform, one that takes racial inequality into account amongst a lot of other things as well. So again, a difficult conversation. Uh, These are just some of the voices in this community, but we think they all have important things to say, important things to bring to the conversation. We'll be looking for other contributors in recent weeks. We hope you understand and appreciate the thinking behind our effort this week and the importance of heading these things off uh, with uh, candid conversations and one that are also guided towards uh, bringing folks together, not tearing them apart. And so some longer segments this week as well. Lots of great voices joining us, but we want to start off tonight by talking to some folks about the consent decree, what changes have been made within Albuquerque police, and what changes still need to happen uh, to get real culture change within the Albuquerque Police Department, especially considering that we are once again looking for a new police chief. So let's turn it over to Gene Grant and our panel here for some thoughts on all of that. I'm joined by via Zoom by Dr. Finney Coleman, Associate Professor for American Literary Studies at the UNM Department of English. Also with us is Steve Torres of APD Watchdog Group, APD Forward. Their son, along with his wife, Renata, their son, Christopher, was one of the men shot and killed by APD when he was just 27 years old. And Kate Linus is a mental health activist. She's with us as well. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, Kate, let me start with you. Um, and I want to go around the, the horn here from everybody, get your sense of this. Um, Simple question, why is this issue of reforming APD so important to you? Lynn, I'll start with you. It's important to me because as a person with bipolar disorder, when I see um, the violence perpetrated by uh, some officers in APD against persons with mental illness, Mm -hmm. it just hits me to my core. Um, You know, I can see that that could be me and I feel so sorry for the families that, that have to endure the loss. Mental illness is a health issue. It is not a police issue. And we need as much as possible to take it away from the responsibility of the police department and put it in the hands of professionals who can help these people get the treatment and, and care that they need and go on with their lives. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Dr. Finney Coleman, same question. Why is it, why is this, why does this burn in you so deeply? Well, for me, it's part of a broader um, set of reforms I think that we need in our country um, that provides justice and liberty for all. And we are far from that in many respects as a nation. You know, I think the Albuquerque Police Department is much like uh, police departments around the country, often under-resourced, 
um, and then often uh, forced to take care of situations or engage in situations that they're not properly trained for, um, or that uh, it would be better if another social agency uh, were, were there. Um, I think with, um, it, it, it has to be said that, you know, we can, we have to be careful when we paint with broad strokes about the individuals who are in uh, any given police department. Uh, but this department, like any other department in this country, um, needs to have a look at what it is supposed to be doing in our communities and what it actually does in our communities. Mm -hmm. Steve, um, you and your wife, your wife, Renata, I mentioned lost your son by APD at 27 years old, and you're part of APD Forward, certainly, and you're working to be that watchdog on APD's reform efforts as part of the Department of Justice consent decree. Um, since your son's death, I have to ask, have you seen any significant changes in how APD engages with the community? The answer is, the answer is yes and no. Okay. In, in, some, in some aspects, we have seen considerable change. Uh, for example, let me give you one, one example. I have seen incredible, incredible change and incredible progress with our CIT officers, crisis intervention training officers. Uh, I have, I've worked with them. I've, I've dealt with a number of them over the last few years, and I have seen tremendous progress made in their training and how they are trained to handle um, critical situations with the mentally ill. Mm -hmm. uh, so on the one hand, I've seen tremendous progress there as, as working with APD forward, as you said, part of our job is to monitor the compliance and the progress with the consent decree. And, and we have seen progress there. We have seen that the police department has met a number of its, a number of its goals mm -hmm. over, over the course of the years. Of course, that's been under that's been under the supervision of the federal judge, and because of the consent decree, I mean, we're not fooling ourselves. Absent that, I don't think it would have happened. But but it has happened. On the other hand, there's still a lot of resistance from a lot of the rank and file police officers, and what really upsets me the most is there seems to be a lot of re resistance from the um, the middle management officers. The the, the sergeants, not, not the guys down on the street, but the sergeants uh, and, and most of the upper level management, I think, um, is coming on board or trying to come on board. But, but there's been a, there's a big segment of the police department there that is still resistant to any change. Um, they just don't think there's a problem and they don't think there's any reason to change the way they've done things for years. Mm. Yeah. Dr. Finney Coleman, you know, when you think about this consent decree we're talking about here, it's been a wild ride. You know, the Berry administration seemed to fight this. The, the Keller administration seems much more embracing and taking a different approach. But, you know, in the monitors, you know, is doing the reports, we're seeing some progress. But as Steve just mentioned, we still score in the 60s in terms of operational measures. And, and as we know how that works. What's it going to take, frankly, in your view, to get the real change that people want and that the, that the Department of Justice is calling for? Well, I think that the true answer to that is one that the public isn't going to be happy with. And it's one that takes a much longer period of time than, say, this consent decree will, is, is going to allow. Um, we need to change the ethos of our Albuquerque Police Department. Mm -hmm. um, that when, a, you know, when an officer comes in, that there are a certain set of standards and ideals um, that they're held to as part of the ethos of that department. 
And, you know, I think, um, you know, you know, with, with the police Academy, um, I know that commander bird at, uh, at the police Academy, um, is working really hard to put together a, a, a good solid curriculum that when our officers are trained, that they understand about equity and inclusion, um, implicit bias and other things. Um, and so if, if we have officers like that, leaders like that, who can stick to their guns and not bow to the pol uh, political pressure from either side to, to not have those officers pro properly trained, I think we have an opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, but if, if we have people, um, our, our lieutenants and the like, um, our commanders, if they um, join in with forces that we might see at the sergeant's level who are resistant to that change, it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible. I think the key is, um, you know, things change over time. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be a long, if we're going to have meaningful change in, um, in the Albuquerque Police Department, in terms of meeting those measures that you, you mentioned, those, those, um, those benchmarks, um, it's going to take a commitment at all levels, which also means that training our existing police officers. I think when given an opportunity um, to learn more about tactics and strategies that can improve their performance, I see nothing that indicates uh, that uh, those officers aren't willing to participate in that, um, but the leadership has to make those opportunities available. And, uh, and, and then we, we go from there and see how we can progress, but nothing's going to happen um, until we get to eat those undergirding APD. Accountability is a big topic, of course, when it comes to this. And as we all know, uh, the state took took some steps recently, getting a handle on this on this and transparency, meaning passing a bill in that special session that had to do with body cameras, uh, creating a civil rights commission, certainly, uh, at least taking a start a look at qualified immunity, uh, you know, the ability to get rid of bad cops through lawsuits and things of that. Is this a good start to you? Is what the legislature pulled off in that special session a good start? I mean, I think that's helpful, particularly for the issues more of systemic racism in the community. Okay. Um, I think the mental illness issue is a little bit different uh, because there's there's issues where the body cameras can actually um, affect people's right to privacy as well. It's a really slippery slope when, you know, I was on the subcommittee for the crisis intervention teams with Bernalillo County. You know, we, we had a lot of back and forth about that with the police officer being part of the CIT. How, you know, do you control that? Is it not subject to IPRA because that person's in crisis and, and they don't want that video out all over the place mm -hmm. of what happened, right? When they're That's having it. a suicidal breakdown or something. Uh, but I'd like to touch on on, on, on on what was said before about, you know, training in the ethos. There's always there's already been quite a bit of additional training. I think that there is a built in stigma and I've lived with it, you know, ever since I've been diagnosed about persons with mental illness. And there is this um, presumption of violence that people like me are violent. Right. And I think that what happened with John Hyde and that unfortunate incident when, you know, he slipped through the cracks for treatment and killed his officers reinforced that here in Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. And the training to crack that is gonna be really difficult. And I think we need to keep trying. I think people with mental illnesses need to be very involved in that training so they see us as people. Mm -hmm. um, but the other part of it is, is I think we should look at taking as much as possible of these kind of calls away from the police. I don't think they really want to do them. You can look at the model of the CAHOOTS model in, in Eugene, Oregon, 
where they've been doing this for 30 years and their teams do not include police. Okay. Um, they handle suicide, you know, calls, um, conflict resolution, crisis counseling, substance abuse, getting people to hospitals, everything. They've never had a violent incident. Um, Denver just started a new model that's based on Eugene's. They've already had 350 calls that they've handled since June. We should be looking at a different way to handle most of these, I think, because right. yes, eventually we maybe get everybody to understand what mental illness is, but and to be more empathetic and not see them as the other and dangerous. But frankly, I don't see this most of the time as something police should be doing. Yeah. Steve, do you touch on that if you would? You know, uh, the, the idea of, you know, of just having cops come out immediately at the drop. What's your sense of how those changes would look to you otherwise? Well, as, as indicated earlier, what happened in the last legislation, legislative session I believe was a good start, mm -hmm. but let's not kid ourselves. That's all it was, was a start. It's a start and we're on, we, we all know we're on a long road. This process of reforming APD is, it, is, is at least a 10, 15, 20 year project. It's, it's something that's, that's gonna last beyond my lifetime possibly. I hope I get to see the day when our mm -hmm. police department is reformed, but, but it, it, it's a start. It's a start and we have to have faith that hopefully it can continue on. But yes, let me follow up on that. The problem with our mentally ill and their interactions with the police department is oftentimes we wait too long. We wait till the situation becomes critical, till the mentally ill person is now in a state of being dangerous to himself or others. And at that point, at that point, it's, it's past the time of calling in the social workers and the doctors Unfortunately, sometimes the only ones you can call at that point is the, is the police. Mm -hmm. So we need to develop a system where we can get intervention earlier, earlier, where families are not ashamed or embarrassed to call and say, hey, I think my son or my daughter or my husband or whatever is, is starting to slip in or, they, or they're off their meds. They haven't taken their meds for a while now. We need somebody to come and help. And, and at that point, yes, social workers, uh, doctors, um, therapists can, are, are maybe all that's needed. Um, mm -hmm. But if you wait until somebody's threatening to to shoot himself or shoot his neighbor, uh, unfortunately, many times the only ones you can call at that point are the police. Yeah, that's a key distinction. I appreciate you bringing that up because these things, it, it's sort of the art of the craft. It is about timing, isn't it? That, I, I really very much appreciate you bringing that up. Hey, Dr. Coleman, um, is there a role for restorative justice in the APD reform? Well, certainly. Um, you know, I think we, uh, and probably you're probably going to talk about this this later. I think when we start having the debates about you know defunding the police or abolishing the police, that when we have those conversations, for that part of the conversation where people are talking about defunding the police, you know, I don't think that that means that. You, you, you're abolishing everything that the you know, Albuquerque Police Department does and getting rid of, uh, I, I understand that there is an argument for that. But there's another argument that says, what we do is we pull back the resources that we have, we've given to this department, have a look at what it is that we expect for that department to do, mm -hmm. and then allocate the, reallocate those resources so that it makes them more effective, right? right. Uh, so, I think there is a, there is room for restorative restorative justice, um, 
certainly on a case by case basis, we need to look at what happens to, to victims um, of, of, of uh, police, uh, you know, crime or, or, or anything that a police officer does that harms another person. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, restorative justice is one of those concepts that a lot of people, you know, dismiss without fully understanding what it means. It's sort of like reparations. Right. You, we somehow <laughs> imagine that it's giving something to someone who doesn't deserve it. I mean, you know, when we look at what happened in South Africa and the healing that took place there, restorative justice meant not just restoring to the person, making them whole, but it was acknowledging what had happened in a way that prevents that from happening again in the future or tries to prevent it from happening in the future. That part gets lost and right. people get hung up on the material aspects of restorative justice when there's part of our, as part of our healing as a community, when we've had these kinds of actions take place in our community, we, we need restorative justice if we're going to move on uh, from these different inc uh, incidents. We need mm -hmm. to reduce the number of incidents, obviously. Right. That's right. When in the unfortunate moments that we have them, uh, we need that process, need a commitment to it. Hey, thank you all for joining us. I really appreciate your, your candid comments. As with all of our discussions this week, we just didn't have time to get in everything we wanted to in the show. And there's still much more to talk about. We're dedicated to getting into it over future episodes and weeks and months. But we did uh, hang on to our folks for a little while longer while we had them on our Zoom call uh, for a little bit further discussion. We want to bring that to you on this podcast as well. And again, especially here, some talk about uh, what leadership plays in this situation and the search for a new police chief here in Albuquerque and what folks would like to see there. You know, guys, it, it's interesting when you think about there's two tensions going on here. One is, as Steve mentioned, this is a long form process. I mean, I can't think of any police department that was reformed in anything under 15 to 20 years. It's just a fact of, you know, of life. But folks want action now. They want to see something now and, and something on the ground that has tangible results. Kate, do you have a sense of if there's a way to reconcile those two things? I think there is. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I, I am not a native New Mexican, but I've lived here for 16 years. And it, my experience in this community seems to be we like to do things. We, we think we have to start from scratch. Right. <laughs> and there are models out there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, right now we have the Memphis model with the CITs. And, and frankly, there's still some gaps in it. You know, one of the things to look at is focusing on the situations that Steve mentioned where the police do need to be called because of the potential for violence. But what about de-escalation techniques, improving those? They're supposed to be, according to the order and the implementation of it, they're supposed to be constantly looking at every incident and going back and learning from that and figuring out how to do it better. How to use less lethal means in those circumstances. So there is one focused thing we could do right now to make the CITs better. In addition, we could look at the models in these other communities like Denver and Eugene and elsewhere and say, what with our existing mental health services here, can we do maybe even in a pilot program to, to learn from these other communities? You have a bigger city like Denver who's just rolling it out. You have a smaller community like Eugene, Oregon. Why can't we look at that rather than creating a whole new department like Mayor Keller wants to do, particularly in a time where we have no budget and there's no state money. You know, we're, we're suffering a recession from the pandemic. This isn't the time to me to start up a whole new thing. Maybe if we were flowing in money, but we're not. 
So mm-hmm. let's look at borrowing from what other communities have learned and applied successfully within our existing framework and finances to, to, to jumpstart some solutions here because mm-hmm. people are dying and we need right. that to stop. I mean, to tell you the truth, I was really ill earlier this year and I was very suicidal and I knew some of my friends were worried and I was afraid to get that knock at the door from the police to somebody coming from a wellness check. And to be perfectly frank, I had PTSD of outside hospitals and I would not have gone willingly and it could have gone south, right? Yeah. I mean, I may look like this isn't gonna happen to me, but yeah, it could have. And I've had friends who've had those encounters. And one of the reasons the police are awkward for this is if you've ever had an encounter with a police officer or an involuntary commitment and being taken to the hospital, the ER, when you're in a mental health crisis, it's traumatizing. I have PTSD because of that. So that's one of the reasons people amp up. That's why they escalate. If they've had that experience before, they're terrified and they're traumatized and they feel it's a life or death thing for them. And so you know, I think we need to understand it more from the individual with the mental illnesses perspective, too. We have a voice here. It's not just the parents. It's not just the families. It's not just the clinicians. It's us. And I feel like we're left out of that. And, and we could be helpful in figuring out how to make progress now. I appreciate those points. Kate, can I ask you actually a quick question um, about uh, CIT crisis intervention training? Is there a way to explain that in, in 20 quick seconds, what's involved with that for the public? We hear this acronym a lot, but I feel like folks don't actually understand what, what goes on there. Well, you know, I haven't been privy to the training, but the, the crisis intervention team is a, is a mental health professional and a police officer. And they come and hopefully they're coming and not in a police vehicle with the lights blaring. Um, right. And the whole goal is to work together and the police officers get training in how to, you know, de-escalate situations, how to respond less violently, how to, when possible, put the social worker or the, you know, the mental health professional in the front. The, the mental health professional gets training in how to be aware of dangerous situations, respond to police direction if necessary. So it's kind of training them together. And within the program, if you go onto the city's website about the implementation of this order, there's language in the latest report that talks about how this is supposed to be an iterative process. So after every incident, they're supposed to look and see, should we have called the CIT? Should they have gone to the call? Did we utilize the CIT right? How did this escalate? What happened? How can we fix it? And it's supposed to be a constant learning curve. I have not seen any evidence of that in the public when after they have an incident, probably because they're worried about litigation. So they, you never see this. I I don't know if it's iterable. It should be um, because they don't talk about the individual. So, and and I think I'm going to file an IPA request pretty soon because I want to see if they've done this because I think it's key to the learning, to the training, to, to changing the culture within APD. Can I encourage you to kind of get on that and and report back to us what you might Absolutely. I love filing IPA requests. (laughs) Hey, I'm with you. It's a great leverage. Steve, listening to Kate just now, how does that strike you as a parent? It, It was, you know, it's easy to go back and say, well, we wish this could have happened or that could have happened, but it, what, is what Kate's describing hit your gut is the right way to go? It, it, I, I do believe so. I certainly think so. And the key issue, she's mentioned it several times, is training. Yeah. The, 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 our officers have to receive the appropriate training on how to deal with people in crisis. Um, we, we had one CIT officer come to our house early on, sat down with our son, and I cannot praise the gentleman enough. He was so calm. 
He was so quiet. He was so patient. He spoke to our son for a good 45 minutes before he, uh, and, and was able to persuade him, you know, hey, look, let's go on in. Let's get an evaluation. The other officers who came the day that my son was killed, there was no patience. There was no calmness. They, they escalated the situation right away. And there was only, there, there, there was, it, in less than five minutes, my son was dead. So, yes, tra- I, I do agree. Training is critical, tra- uh, particularly for the CIT officers, but for all of the officers, so that they're all, they all have some knowledge on, on what to deal, on how to handle the situation, and when to call in for help when they need it. Right, right. You know, I got a last question for Dr. Penny Coleman. And I'd like to ask the other folks for a little runway on this. When you consider African-American issues in our city, and our state, we're only 2.9% of the population statewide. The things we're talking about, is there special issues when it comes to people of color and black people, particularly when it comes to dealing with APD? Is there something missing between APD's understanding of the community and maybe how we deal with them as well. What, what's your sense of that? Yeah, my my, my sense is uh, uh, well, of course, um, yeah. there 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 clearly um, is a disjuncture uh, disjunction between um, you know how communities of color are policed as opposed to um, communities that are more affluent. I mean, and and that just that's just the way that it is. Not just here in Albuquerque. It's it's a, across our country. And so when I look at it, I'm, I'm looking at it from a historical lens and the role that the police have always played in terms of the dominant culture and the military force available to that dominant culture to affect its will um, in, a, across communities. And so we can't divorce ourselves from that really dark. Um, and so what policing needs in, um, in communities that are more affluent is significantly different than what it means in communities, especially communities that are African-American, communities of color. For those communities, police officers are often seen as people who are there to surveil the community, to protect um, another community from that community. Gotcha. Um, it's very difficult for us to divorce ourselves, ourselves from that history. And as much as we might like to maybe, you know, pretend that is not the case here because we have, you know, a low, percentage of the population being African-American, um, you know, close to 3%. But um, th- the truth is, this is something that's ingrained in the fabric of our nation. Um, I think what we see, what we're seeing tonight, um, I guess it won't be tonight, it will be a couple of nights ago in, um, Saint, in, in, uh, in Louisville right. uh, with the Breonna, uh, Breonna Taylor case. I mean, the kids who are in the streets are not in the streets because they're illogical and that their, 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 their anger and frustration is misplaced. The police and their interaction with the community in, in the black community is coupled with a criminal justice system that has always been a, 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 a system of privilege based on race. Um, and so we're, we're, we're dealing with that in Albuquerque just like every other community across this country, more work needs to be done in that area. We need to be intellectually honest about about those interactions too. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Boy, guys, uh, a lot to go on here. It's good stuff. 
again, wrapped up in all the COVID-19, we've seen a lot of civil political unrest, largely uh, flamed by the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis um, by police there, which led to a string of protests that are still ongoing here in New Mexico and elsewhere, really worldwide, as Black Lives Matter um, is uh, something that stays very top of mind here in New Mexico and ties very closely to police reform issues as well. So for the next group, we've got uh, several local community organizers and activists who are talking a little bit about what these protests are about, uh, what the message is, what the calls for action are, and really how we can move beyond protests and discussion into real reform uh, efforts. Let's turn it back over now to Gene Grant and a new panel of folks with their insights. The calls for change in APD have come loudest in the form of recent protests in Albuquerque and across the state in the wake of the shooting of George Floyd and other high-profile police-related deaths. We wanted to talk to some local organizers and activists to find out what change they're looking for specifically and how they see their role in creating culture change inside APD. I'm joined today by Sean Cardinale, a community organizer with Truth to Power New Mexico. LaQuante Berry is also an organizer with the Black New Mexico Movement. And we've also got with us Reed Easterwood. And thank you all for being here. We had another guest lined up, a woman to join us. Uh, she couldn't make it. We feel strongly that having a woman in, in, in this conversation and a woman's voice is important. So we'll pick that up down the road. So it's a bit of a hole today. Reed, let me ask you a first question here, or Sean, rather, let me go to you on this. All of you have been involved, have been involved in various ways um, in local protests in the push for massive reform within APD. But why did you want to get involved personally? What was the impetus there? For Truth to Power in New Mexico, we just felt like we wanted uh, Botenos to not feel alone in this historic moment. Uh, you know, the White House sent federal troops. Uh, we have our own APD still under Justice Department uh, investigation and, and oversight. Uh, and we have issues still with the BCSO um, for not carrying their cameras and for stumping, basically, for the White House. Um, so. In all respects, we just wanted folks to know that New Mexico is still here. The progressive movement is still here. Black lives still matter. And that we wanna be part of this larger, again, historic movement. This is the new civil rights movement. Uh, this is, could possibly be the next uh, reconstruction. And so we wanted civic leaders, faith leaders and community leaders to be a part of voicing uh, their concerns and their protest in that manner. Same question, what motivated you to get involved officially? Um, well, I would say like officially taking over and having an organization, um, George Floyd, the killing of George Floyd played a big part in that. Mm -hmm. uh, me, myself, I'm from Mississippi. Um, so I come from the South where, you know, it's a big thing when it comes to racism. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a big fan of the whole Emmett Till story. Um, so that, that touched me since I was a kid. Um, so that's kind of what influenced me to take a lead and bring in a team of guys that have the same vision as myself to get out there to kind of touch the people and unify across New Mexico and then actually get out there and touch other states and cities as well to let people know that New Mexico is here. We're in support of what's going on uh, and we want to change just like everyone else wants change as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Reed, I do have a bit of a, a more pointed question for you. Um, your friend and the community's friend, frankly, Ken Reese, was involved in one of the most recent deadly APD shootings 
Uh, he, as we all remember, he called 911 in fear for his life because, you know, it was a home invasion, as he described it over the phone. Uh, there were 11 shots and a lot of questions, and he's not with us. That led to another round of local protests. How did this death hit you differently than the other high-profile police shootings that we know about? Well, it's I've struggled with this. It's hard to put into words. It's a personal loss. I knew Ken for 19 years uh, and definitely was a uh, very uh, good friend of mine. And uh, I, uh, when someone dies, it's close to you. It's um, it's it's hard to put it into perspective. The the quote unquote real world seems very unreal. And I, I've always felt aligned with the need for police reform. And I wanted to touch on something said earlier that mm-hmm. the George Floyd killing was uh, brutal, and um, the whole country had to watch that. And uh, obviously uh, caused uh, needed attention. And I'd go back a little further. The federal consent decree on the Albuquerque police uh, in place is of concern to me and where that's at. But to your question specifically, when Ken was gunned down, I felt uh, that I had a bonding more in what I call the zone of victimization by police brutality. Mm-hmm. And I don't, there's no way I can say I know what other family members or friends across the country are going through, but I feel like now I have some sort of intangible peg uh, on that too, on that grief process and what that is causing across the country for uh, calls for police reform. Mm-hmm. Sean Cardinelli, I mean, obviously what Reed's talking about uh, is not a new situation for us here in Albuquerque. Police brutality is not a new issue. Um, and we're used to these kind of stories in today's age, and that's all well and good, and it's sad as it sounds, but does it make it different that Ken was white? I don't think it makes a difference because mm-hmm. what it shows is that police brutality is a part of the culture of policing, which is why we get into these larger conversations about abolishing the police and defunding the police, which I have my own opinions on as far as what phrases you're using or what you mean by those phrases. But what it shows is that in general, and you know, from a culturally systemic point of view, policing needs to be reformed. And now people are to the point where they're saying abolish or defund or some, some other way reimagine policing because it's not working. The police have been militarized since the 80s and 90s. They bombed Philly in 85. They, they have gone, run rampant over Los Angeles in the 80s and 90s. I mean, we've seen this for 30 years and we had been, and black folks have been arguing about it for 60, you know, 50, 60 years before that. Right. So it's finally time to address why people are, so, are pushing back against police presence. And so again, uh, Ken's death is tragic uh, like the others. And it showed, and while there is a preponderance of blue on black uh, uh, killings, it does show that overall there needs to be massive police reform in the culture of policing and to demilitarize it. Mm-hmm. Laquante, pick up on that if you would, your sense of that situation and, and where the movement is pointed towards. Um, I agree exactly with what Sean said. Um, it's not about, I think that's where a lot of people get confused. It's not about a color of mm-hmm. a skin. It's, it's about, like I tell people all the time, it's about a person's heart. Um, someone's life was taken. Uh, someone's son, you know, someone's uncle, someone's a father. Um, so it's bigger than that. It's a problem in the system. Um, so that's why we always say that we're about a reform instead of um, abolish. 
We say that because of the fact the system's been here all these years. It's worked for all these people of all these different races. Why can't we fix the system just to work for everyone mm-hmm. instead of trying to tear it down and just do away with it completely? Um, once we do tear it down and we get away completely with it, what's next? So that's the question that we have for anyone that says that's abolished. Well, what do you have after you abolish? Um, now, if we just fix the situation that we have now that's worked for many of people, many of years, fix it to work for everyone. Again, not about just what skin color you are or about how much money you have. Just make it work for everyone, the American people. Let's fix that and get that right for us. Mm-hmm. Reed, uh, Laquanta just used the word abolish. It's, it's sort of a word out there that's out there. And for viewers who are not totally close to the BLM movement or, or reform issues, there's abolish or defund. Which to you is, 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 or maybe there's a third term in your view besides abolish or defund. What's the proper way folks should, be, should consider the changes we want at APD? Well, if I understood what LaQuante uh, said, and I think I do, I, I don't want to misstate what he was saying, but uh, he mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily saying you needed to totally get rid of the police. Mm-hmm. I agree with that uh, position as long as we're going to have in place uh, private property rights, which has been the nature of this country uh, even before its inception. And uh, so uh, defunding the police, quote unquote, isn't necessarily, I think, an instructive term uh, if, unless you put limitations on it. In my view, a a great way to move would be to try to take some of the calls the police respond to off of their plate. Uh, For instance, uh, mental health uh, type calls, domestic calls, those sorts of calls. And that presents another can of worms though with a a funding mandate. How do you staff some sort of calls that could intercept and not lead to uh, potentially tragic violence? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I see that as potentially a way uh, to reform the police across the nation and here in Albuquerque and focus the police on what I take historically was their mandate to begin with going way back in history, which was just uh, sort of protecting uh, private property rights, not not uh, shooting people. That's right. And, yeah. I'll make a little comment on Please. bounce off of uh, a read. And, and so too, I appreciate you know the quandary over over defund the police because I actually think that that it's going to end up being a, a historically you know bad branding. I think it's well intentioned, but when you have to explain in like Washington Post and New York Times over and, and in Vox and over and over again what defunding means, I think you've missed the mark tragically for something that is an important uh, uh, movement, an important pivot as far as police reform. Um, but but to have to explain it over and over again makes it difficult. Like that's the definition of poor branding. And so again when people are, I think it also unnecessarily causes a backlash. You know, like we already have enough attention on us. We are already literally under the crosshairs of these, you know, socio-political arguments. And so we don't want people to think, you know, uh, it's anti-police or it's, you know, abolish the police, or you have to go through this long explanation. I think it also too speaks to like a scarcity mentality, you know, that we have to have a limited amount of resources 
uh, with our policing. It, it's like, no, we need to properly allocate funds to the cops, but not over militarize them. We need to properly allocate, as, as Reed was, was talking about, to mental health care. We've had our own situation here in the foothills years ago. You all know about the, 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 the uh, mentally ill man who was killed by the cops here. That was a huge case. And so it's more about proper allocation in my mind. That's what I would like to see and not think from a scarcity point of view, because then that's just black people like me and Tay arguing again over scraps and crumbs from the table. And that's right. not going to solve anything. You need proper exactly. allocation across the board, not have us fighting over crumbs. That's a good point there. We've got about three minutes left, guys. Laquana, I, I want to ask you this question. How important is leadership in this situation and accountability, of course, in your view? I mean, it, and where does it come from? Is it from the mayor? Is it from the upcoming or incoming new police chief? Who actually drives this thing? Uh, that's a great question. You actually, we actually just was talking about uh, the new police chief, and we were saying that it should be someone of color or someone that's from a diverse area um, so they can understand how the people here are. Um, as we stated before, we're in Albuquerque. We're in New Mexico. Um, it's very diverse. So the problems that they may have in um, a Kentucky or um, Portland or somewhere may be different than what we're having here because we are so diver diverse. So I think that's why we need to have the questions in the room of how we can get things right and get things better because we shouldn't be going through the things that we're going through with being so diverse. Mm -hmm. Reed, um, creating a culture inside a police department, man, you're talking a long haul traditionally, but we are in a new era and it may not be as long as we may think because there's folks like yourselves, activists, organizers who wanna see change right now. How do you reconcile these two things? that it, it's going to take a long time, but there's a lot of pressure to have some changes right now. I, you know, this year, it's hard to wrap your head around this year with everything going on with the unchecked pandemic. And that's how I would answer that. That has exposed so many fissures in our system. And I think people across not only the United States, the world are looking to, um, some sort of expedited response, some sort of expedite different ways to live and to restructure human systems, period. And I think that that will have some traction into next year and beyond. I think it's going to be a roller coaster. It's not going to be easy, but on the side of, uh, I, I tend to have a negative worldview, people that know me, but on the, to the extent that humans are capable throughout history of great accomplishments. This is, I think, the beginning of a period where it, the task is before us. And it's outside of the United States, too. This is global. That's this right. is global. This is just one symptom of huge problems. So I think that, I know you don't have much time, but I think that uh, that is going to really drive a lot of change. It's a good point there. Sean Cardinelli. Laquante, Barry Black, and you just heard from Reed Estewood. I want to thank you guys enough, a, a lot rather, for spending some time on this and talking so openly about it. We look forward to talking to you more in the future about it as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And before we move on from this discussion, we again took a few extra minutes to talk to these folks. Uh, and, uh, you know, what's interesting about Black Lives Matter and the protests over police reform and police brutality. There are different organizations, different groups. They may have different thoughts. Uh, some of these groups are calling for abolishing the police department altogether. Others want reform. And you're going to hear LaQuante Berry um, here at the beginning, uh, who I think has a great anecdote about 
what we need to do with all these different thoughts and opinions to really push this ball down the field uh, to real change and as well more on the youth movement and how that plays into the protests around racial inequality here in Albuquerque and uh, throughout the country, throughout the world. I just think that when we talk about um, kind of the reform and abolish, I think a lot of people that I've talked to around here, like organization leader wise, or kind of had conversations about how these people are moving nowadays. um, I kind of feel like we're all, I posted the other day that we're kind of all on different boats, but we're in the same storm. Uh, Mm. I think we're all trying to get to the same place. Um, But people are using these different words and different terms nowadays that they're getting lost in all of this. Because when I say reform, or when we say reform as a whole with Black New Mexico movement, we mean everything that they're saying. We want those funds to go somewhere else. Um, how can we reallocate those funds? How can we um, fix the uh, the system so that it works for people that are um, of color? Um, just everything, like how how can we take away these militarized, militarized weapons that they have that they don't need? Where can we put this money into like the homeless? So I think all that falls under the same thing, but people just want to use different words or different ways of going about it. So again, I think that we're all on different boats, uh, but we're fighting the same storm. That's a good analogy. You know, another thing too is like, um, we didn't necessarily hit on this. It might be controversial too, but in terms of if you, if it's a necessary evil, I mean, that's a whole discussion with police, but you're going to have to have police is community policing and looking at that and what that actually means and how right. is that affected. It's a so, much better, it's a much better idea, Reed, because yeah. I mean, they say that that's how it used to be. I don't know if that's a little rose colored, you know, the fifties were never leave it to beaver. That was just the TV. Version. Thank you. That said, that said, you know, it's impossible to expect young men and women uh, from outside the community with weeks, not months or years, but weeks of training. Now they have lethal authority being yeah. dropped into, you come from the middle of Ohio, you come from the beach in California, and then you land in the middle of the international district, or you land in the middle of, you know, a, a, a whatever neighborhood, and you just don't know the people and the culture and the vibe, you are going to make assumptions, you are going to use that gun too quickly, and you are not going to have a connection with your community leaders, and that needs to change. And another issue too, I mean, it's, it's a long conversation, but from the police perspective, they train cops here and then they leave to other markets because Albuquerque can't keep them with the pay they have. And so they're constantly understaffed and trying to keep good people and candidates and they move on to go other places. I got a question. Could this town handle an African-American woman as a police chief? I would love it. Why not? Like to me personally, I feel like, People say that America is not ready for a woman to run anything. Um, to be honest, I think it's time. Um, I think we have to go with a different approach. Like I tell people when it comes to us protesting. Um, yes, the way Martin um, Martin Luther King did it back in the day was different than how we're going to do it today. Um, so I'm not necessarily going to say when people are out there burning things that they're, they're wrong. Um, now, the people that are out there burning things that don't have a reason to be doing those things, but people that are actually out there hurting and they really they really feel some type of way about what's going on. I'm not going to say they're wrong, but on the other end, I'm not going to encourage it neither. But I think that's what people have to understand today, that we're in different times. The generation is different. Um, to be honest, it's, it's the younger kids now. It's those ones that are out here trying to make change and out here making moves. So, I mean, people yeah. have to understand that now times are different and people are going to do yeah. things differently. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the younger generations to me, I'm 53 years old. They're really impressive. And to me, people I've met from like 
in their 30s, even younger, their 20s, have a much better political bead, historical perspective than people my age. Mm -hmm. And that's that's encouraging because I I think this is true, but I think they outnumber the baby boomers. You know, I don't want to be mean, but they're dying off. And that's those are some bankrupt ideas, you know, and it's uh it's the political system's always gonna like divide and conquer. I don't know how you stop that. That's obviously the way our politics runs. And I don't know how you get control on that to make yeah. that not acceptable. To get back to real debate, real dialogue, bring people together. I've been wanting to speak with the mayor. I've been wanting to speak with the governor, um, everybody, and just get in those rooms and have those those talks in those spaces because it's like they're not talking to people like myself, a 32-year-old black male who's out here running an organization who's actually active. They're not talking to me. They're talking to people that are in these closed rooms that aren't actually coming out there. They see something that these people are reporting from these different news stations and they're running with it and saying, oh, we're going to do this because we heard of this. No, come talk to me or come talk to some people that's a part of my team or some people that's a part of these other organizations that's really out here and that really knows what the people want and what change we really want to see in the city. Yeah. yeah. And to jump off of what Tay is saying, um, there are the select few, right? There are the select uh, typical older generation like Reed was, was criticizing uh, uh, folks of color, and I'm sorry. I mean, I'm I'm only 46. I feel like I'm in my prime, but there are people younger than me and younger than that who need to be brought to the table. Maybe they don't have the experience or the wisdom, but they have the fire and the drive, and they are unsullied by the political machine and the and the muck that all of these folks are soiled with. At the key or at the core of a lot of the police reform talk is a phrase you've probably heard, may not know a lot about, that is qualified immunity. This is a legal term that has to do with uh, protections for police that make it very hard for people to sue when they believe there has been police misconduct or corruption. Uh, there are a lot of legal protections in place, and there's a lot of folks who want to see that changed. So we wanted to learn more about qualified immunity and why some folks think it is a problem and what can be done to reform it. Also, lots of great discussion here about uh, some of the counter arguments to this in terms of uh, paralyzing officers if they face so much scrutiny that they are questioning themselves on every decision they make um, and what the chances are for legislation around qualified immunity in upcoming legislative sessions. It's a great conversation and a brand new group of folks to fill us in about this as well. Some um, current acting law lawyers, as well as legal experts, as well as the ACLU of New Mexico. Here back now is Jean Grant. Accountability and transparency have been themes you have already heard a few times on the show. And a lot of times that accountability only comes through the legal system. We want to spend some time now on what exactly that looks like and what folks are talking about when they mention qualified immunity. I'd like to welcome Peter Simonson from the ACLU of New Mexico, Marshall Ray, an attorney here in town, and also Alfred Matthewson, Professor Emeritus at UNM Law School. Now, uh, Marshall, let me start with you. The state legislature this year approved the creation of a civil rights commission, as we all know, to, among other things, look at the issue, the issue of qualified immunity. What exactly is qualified immunity and what should the layperson know about it? Qualified immunity is a defense to certain lawsuits brought against persons 
acting under color of state law, usually law enforcement officers. If I, as a, as a individual, feel that a law enforcement officer or other person acting under color of state law has violated my constitutional rights or my rights under federal law, I can sue them and try to get damages or some other relief. And they have a defense called qualified immunity. And the gist of it is that if they can show that they acted reasonably under the circumstances from an objective viewpoint, then you lose the lawsuit. And not only do you not get to recover anything from them, but you can't even move forward with the suit. You can't get discovery. You can't take depositions. You can't learn more about your case to try to develop what really happened. You know, I think that would surprise most folks. And Peter, the ACLU, you pushed for changes to qualified immunity during the same session we're talking about, but the governor didn't put it on her call. Do you expect a bill to be in the upcoming session? And uh, if so, what will it be seeking? Well, of course, the governor did actually approve of a memorial going forward that would create the commission that you mentioned before. So, you know, by the end of the year, we're going to have some recommendations from this commission, which, by the way, just um, uh, uh, is, involves uh, some of the best minds in our state on constitutional law. And, um, and I think uh, their recommendations, I'm, I'm hoping, will go forward in the form of some sort of legislation um, that the legislature would consider in its 2021 session. And, you know, uh, qualified, you know, we're talking about qualified immunity. I think it's important to point out that this bill, um, assuming one would, would come out of their recommendations, wouldn't get rid of qualified immunity per se. That is a federal legal doctrine. What it would actually do is it would create the same ability to sue under our state's constitution, uh, the same very an analogous rights provisions that we have in the federal constitution um, and seek the kinds of damages and relief that uh, Mr. Ray was talking about, but under our state constitution. Mm -hmm. That's very critical. You know, we as a civil rights organization file civil rights lawsuits all the time in federal court, and we lose many of those lawsuits on qualified immunity, even when there, is, there are clearly justified grounds for suing somebody for, vi for rights violations, law enforcement officers, and other government actors on First Amendment issues, on due process issues, whatever it might be. So this gives the, the residents of New Mexico their own Civil Rights Act, uh, just like the Federal Civil Rights Act, to be able to sue under our state constitution and get some sort of a redemption for the rights violations that they've experienced. Mm -hmm. Alfred Matheson, are you ever aware of any police departments around the country that are on board with getting rid of uh, qualified immunity at this point? I'm, I'm not aware of any. Yeah. <laughs> Peter might know more, but I'm not aware of any. How do we work on getting buy-in in Albuquerque, here in Albuquerque? Well, I think that, uh, I, I don't know that we will get buy-in uh, mm -hmm. for it. Um, just looking at what's happening here, just process-wise, process uh, things have been happening for a long time. There is a, a system that's deeply entrenched. Mm -hmm. The officers are a, a part of it. And if you have a legal regime, that protects you from suit, why would you agree to one that was going to make it easier to sue you? Right, right. Do we have a feel, Alfred, on where the public is on this? I mean, do we have public demand and how, you know, your sense of how much is there? I, I think there's a lot there, but I think the public is, is split. Okay. And, and which way the majority go, but there, there are a lot of very loud voices that are pushing for 
uh, an end to qualified immunity or a reform of qualified immunity. Uh, and there's some surprising uh, voices. This is not necessarily limited to Black Lives Matter or mm -hmm. others that you see in the street. Mm -hmm. Jean, Marshall, I I gotta... Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, just quickly, I just wanted Please. to make one point related to what uh, Alfred was saying, and that is that you know one of the objections that pe people bring up to uh, getting rid of qualified immunity in some way or skirting around it is that it would put uh, police officers in the position of representing themselves in lawsuits. That is absolutely false. There is no reality to that. The great majority, literally 99% or more of civil rights cases brought against law enforcement officers are indemnified by their departments. Their legal fees are paid for in that civil litigation by the, by the department. So uh, we expect to see that argument come up in opposition to this kind of legislation, but it is a red herring. That's important. I'm glad, I'm glad you got that in there. Uh, Marshall Ray, another important point from another point of view, we hear a lot that officers feel like they'd be afraid of every decision they make if they will, in essence, be paralyzed to act. I mean, how do we balance this idea of accountability, but allowing, you know, officers to do their job without living in constant fear of, of suits? Is there is there a middle ground here? Well, well, certainly there is. And it goes back to what Mr. Simonson is saying. These proposed reforms, they're not trying to eliminate qualified immunity. They're trying to make it a more reasonable approach because right now what qualified immunity means in a practical sense is that if there is not some almost identical factual precedent where a court has said that's a constitutional violation, then you can't recover from you can't recover on that constitutional violation, even if the court believes that you experienced a constitutional violation. They'll say, well, "Yeah, this was a constitutional violation, but we've never heard another court say this is a constitutional violation in this factual scenario. So therefore, you can't sue." What if we could just reform, even as a modest step, if you could reform the qualified immunity concept so that you don't have a defense that it never happened before, so I get a pass, I get a mulligan. If you violated a constitutional right, then you violated a right and, it, and you should be accountable. Interesting point there. Uh, Alfred Matheson, um, interesting when you think about how much money Albuquerque has paid out over the years in civil suits and things like that. I, I'm just curious where this all fits into the, to the, to that whole sort of area is if you can't get restitution using qualified immunity, are there other ways for the public to still be able to bring suit or get some kind of restitution after things happen? Well, well there are lawsuits, but again, the process, the system in, in terms of how it's entrenched. So qualified immunity, you, you are talking about suits against the, the officer, but there are also lawsuits against the, the city. Uh, in connection with these cases. And there's a different regime for the lawsuits against the city and mm -hmm. you settlements. So that, uh, so between the two lawsuits between officers where you don't get qualified immunity and the city when they are liable, cases right. settle. And, it's, and actually I think the public would be surprised at how much municipalities are paying out around the country uh, in settling cases. Uh, mm -hmm. New York pays about $100 million a year Wow. Several cases. Uh, Chicago pays a lot. L.A. pays pays a lot. And even in Albuquerque, I haven't seen the, the numbers uh, lately, uh, but Albuquerque pays out a lot. This is coming from the, the, the taxpayers. Right. And this goes to in terms of 
where I stand on qualified immunity. I'm actually you can count me in the camp, but I would eliminate it because I, I think we need major transformation and simply reforming just becomes another incremental change and, and to really get accountability and shake things up. Think of what happens if uh, when the officers do have to think about those decisions, but it doesn't start when they get into the situation. It starts when they first leave to embark on a call. Mm. They are planning a, a tactical uh, incident. It starts there. I mean, if you look at the, the Breonna Taylor case, it didn't start when they got to the apartment. They just yeah. go in violently before they got there. Uh, and so it will change the thinking about how you stage operations if there's going to be accountability. Peter, pick up on that if you would, on Alfred's point there. That that's an interesting track there about this changing of behavior when there is the legitimate, you know, threat of suit out there. Yeah, well, you know, in my opinion, um, I think changing the qualified immunity doctrine or creating an alternative ways for our rights to actually be not just rights on paper, but rights that are truly actualized uh, in the law. Um, is just one ingredient in a whole constellation of different things that I think need to happen if we're going to see a dramatic change in the patterns of police violence that we've seen, particularly practiced against uh, communities of color around the country and here in New Mexico or against folks that suffer from mental illness. Mm -hmm. um, qualified immunity is one ingredient, but uh, the use of body-worn cameras is another uh, mechanism for, for accountability, um, changing the way officers think about use of force and uh, using de-escalation de as, a, as a way of reducing the use of force, reducing the number of officers who are actually armed and maybe actually transferring some uh, responsibilities for interactions with the public to non-armed, non-uniformed positions that are maybe more skilled in dealing with uh, social social kinds of issues like mental health issues or substance abuse. You know, all those things need to work in concert, qualified immunity in my view, and, and getting, uh, getting some sort of reparation for, for that uh, concept um, is just one, one ingredient. Yeah. Russell Ray, is this a leadership issue? I, I mean, who can actually push this forward in a, in a singular fashion? I, you know, is it the chief of police, a mayor, a governor? Who can actually turn the dial on this and make it happen? Um, I, I would think that it's a combination of um, police agencies. I think police union would need to be involved in the discussion. But I, I, I do want to add something to what Mr. Simonson said. About, and I believe that one of the struggles that we have is transparency in what happens in a particular use of force or particular incident involving a state of fit or a, a person acting under color of state law and an individual right now because part of the qualified immunity defense is that you can't investigate your claim by doing discovery and you can't get evidence mm -hmm. that there is a major opportunity for agencies to circle the wagons so to speak and prevent you from learning what happened and um initiatives that help towards gathering evidence for example the new, the camera requirement that will now that will now apply to all um, law enforcement agencies in the state of new mexico will right. help and but then the ability you know probably you know professor Matheson Marshall, is I, I do i do need a favor we're gonna we're gonna we are gonna tackle that one specifically in another show sure. but i'm gonna wrap this up my fault sure. i know we could talk about this for a long time so marshall ray it. peter simonson and alfred Matthewson, thank you guys very much really appreciate this conversation thank you thank you, you take care
We have one more area to tackle this week in terms of police reform. But before we do that, we want to uh, offer that space and that time up here for a little more of our conversation with our legal panel here uh, in terms of qualified immunity reform and other approaches um, to dealing with the legalities around police reform. And an interesting discussion you're going to hear here just about how far uh, just an apology for past um, bad behavior, past bad policies, all the things that are wrapped up in the consent decree. Never really had that. And uh, you're going to hear folks talk about what you think the impact of that would be, but also why maybe that hasn't happened because of um, opening up liability on the behalf of city officials, police department. But um, when you're talking about restorative justice, which is one of the big things you've heard time and time again in this show, that is a really key place to start. Uh, and a lot of folks think it would go a long way towards rebuilding trust in APD and bringing the community together. So great conversation, as have all the rest been. Let's let you hear that, and then we'll wrap up the show after that. Is there anything in specific about, you know, the conversation you want to kind of dive back into and, and illuminate just a little bit more from any, from anybody? Oh, oh, Peter. Just a couple things. One, I think it's important to make the distinction that this qualified immunity doctrine um, really only applies to civil litigation. It doesn't apply to criminal charges that are brought against officers. So um, it's not like by... Uh, getting around qualified immunity or changing qualified immunity somehow that that officers are going to be unfairly criminally charged. That's not that's not by any means um, the situation. Um, and uh, there was one other point, but it's escaping me now. I'll come here. If I I'll see if I can come back to it. Alfred, did you have something about uh, along issues of race? You know, you mentioned Breonna Taylor. We've had our we've had our Breonna Taylor type moments here, for gosh sake. I mean, it's, it's no, not as I, I think uh, in talking about qualified immunity, uh, a lot of our, uh, the conversation tends to be about qualified immunity and, and race isn't mentioned as much. Right. In, in terms of talking about qualified immunity with reforms, uh, that needs to be, somehow it needs to come up more. And one of the things that, that has occurred to me, just looking at this from somebody who hasn't wasn't involved for years and now taking a look at it, um, one of the things that we have pushed for is, is data, mm. which is required under the, under the consent decree. And, and, and I somehow think that the, the disparate impact in the use of force ought to be something considered in shaping qualified immunity uh, policy. If you have a, a, a law enforcement agency that, yes, all of its, uh, most of its, um, use of force incidents or particularly when, when, particularly when people are hurt, they're all in one community. We ought to look at the disparate impact. Uh, should they be able to use it when they only use it in one part of town? That's a very good point. Marshall, you have a thought on that? That, that actually is an interesting wrinkle there. Um, absolutely, um, because there is a public fight about whether there is disparate impact and what it means. Right. And we really should get that data and know about it. And it definitely should drive any policy. But Professor Matthewson is right. There probably shouldn't be a defense of qualified immunity. Why? I'm just for my own curiosity. 
because um, it it's an opportunity for judges to put themselves in the shoes of the community and siphon out and dismiss out cases. Whereas um, the, the, the civil system in the United States is built around the jury trial. And instead of having this magic defense that eliminates a lawsuit and eliminates the ability to investigate it at the front end, let it move forward like any other civil lawsuit. And if a civil rights violation occurred, then let a jury find liability. If it didn't, then they can find that there's not liability. Mm -hmm. Gotcha, I appreciate yeah, that. Put, Please. Put simply, I mean, what that means is that the qualified immunity creates a situation where your rights are only rights on paper mm -hmm. and that they can't be enforced in a court of law unless you're so lucky as to actually drive a case to settlement as, as we've talked about. So, you know, and we're not just talking about law enforcement issues. I mean, these are civil rights of any stripe. Um, you know, we all believe we have these amazing protections under the Bill of Rights of the U.S. Constitution, but they can't be actualized when a doctrine like qualified immunity stands in the way. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Do you have, I'm assuming you're working on the commission that was formed? Peter, sorry about that. Uh, uh, we're not working on the commission. Our staff are sort of tracking how the conversations are going. Okay. I understand that their meetings are publicly broadcast. And so we are okay. sort of uh, watching how things are evolving and, and the conversations where they're going. And again, it's our hope that, that it will result in some progressive legislation that we can consider gotcha. in January. Any early takes you can re report out from the ACLU point of view? Not that I not that I can uh, particularly cite, but uh, okay. I will say that we have some great people on that commission, and I'm I think uh, and I'm pretty confident that we'll see some good results from it. If APD came out and like apologized for things, you know, the the idea that it would open up the city to a slew of potential lawsuits, is that a red herring? Does that make sense? I mean, Alfred Matthewson at UNM is it? How I, should folks I think it's that? something. I think it's something to, uh, to be considered coming up with a framework for how you you do that. Okay. Is now a part of it. You have to go to the psychology of the officer who's involved uh, in, to protect the public and in a situation, and and then making a decision to use force. Right. But the the officer the officer needs to go home and be able to sleep at night. That's what they're feeling, and and so mm -hmm. the, I think what I usually see is they almost always think I made the right call. Um, and to be able to say to say I'm sorry is to say I made the wrong call, and I'm not sure uh, what they can do with that. But for mm -hmm. the community, being able to get apologies from the city and for the police department is hugely important. Right. That's one of the things well, that people talk about, and you don't. It, it just doesn't happen. And but Professor Matthewson, something that I saw in the news recently. Princeton University had was working on some sort of restorative um, statements about its history, and in response, the Department of Justice came out and told them that they were investigating them for historical civil rights violations based on their admissions. Do you see that APD might worry about exposing itself to something like that with a public apology? Of course they are. You know, when I got involved, one of the things that, that I, and actually I still look at and, and have been trying to uh, think through and have been speaking with some professors here uh, at the university is some sort of truth and reconciliation restorative justice process where something like that could happen. I think that, that you don't get closure 
with where we are now, even with the consent decree and we'll get through, but it still remains that there were people who were killed and they don't have closure and it doesn't end just because the consent decree winds up uh, being complied with. It's an important point. These are people we're talking about. It's a very important point. Peter Simonson, I do have a question. Is this impactful in any way on the hiring of a new police chief for Albuquerque? Meaning if a new police chief shows themselves to be highly against the idea of getting rid of qualified immunity, what does that do to the mayor's decision? Boy, um, I mean, you know, from our perspective, I guess uh, that would raise some eyebrows. Um, you know, I have to say that there is a law enforcement perception of this um, that is very different from ours. And there's a lot of misunderstanding and misconception of what qualified immunity actually means and how it operates. Mm -hmm. um, what I want to hear from a police chief is that he's ready to ensure that his department is held accountable to the standards that they're trying to reach within the consent decree. And he is committed to making sure each and every officer from high ranking officers on down to the rank and file are going to be towing the line when it comes to carrying out these reforms. We're granted an unusual opportunity in Albuquerque to, to move away from a traditional historic pattern of cycles of police violence in our community with this consent decree. And we need a leader who is gonna get us there. Um, right now, you know, there's been a lot of good progress made, but there's a lot more progress and some key pieces of the reform that have been lagging. So um, for that, that particular issue, like that's not a deal breaker for me, but it certainly is one that I would have to take into a, a, a sort of assessment of, of just how committed the uh, chief is to this reform process. Sure, sure. Uh, Professor Matthewson, would you like to take a cut at that too? Because I, I think there are uh, police, I mean, leaders across the uh, country who are interested in reform, mm -hmm. who are, are looking at things as they are and, and want to find a way to do things better. So to me, I think you want a, a, a chief who uh, is interested in doing something different, who is interested in reforming the system, but it's also someone who's interested in trying to sell it and bring the ranking file along. Now you're talking leadership. You know, Marshall Ray, I've got to say though, you know, if you're incoming chief of police and you've let it known that you're for, uh, you know, some kind of change in, in qualified immunity, what does that do for your rank and file folks just walking straight in the door? Or maybe that's the point. <laughs> you, you see what I mean? Yes, um, partly it should be the point. Because what we're dealing with in a, in a civil rights violation lawsuit is not just the violation that we're alleging, but the training and the culture in which a particular officer is operating. And um, I actually do believe that being subject to money damages and liability can incentivize an organization, including a police organization, to have a better culture as far as training and recruiting and, um, and accountability and transparency. Mm -hmm. All right, so our last discussion of the show this week. Again, this is just the beginning of a long conversation. Lots of issues wrapped up in police reform. Lots of issues wrapped up in how our systems have been built uh, with a lot of racial equality and other problems 
inherent in it. It goes back to even the founding of the country. You've heard a lot about that in recent months. There's a lot of serious things to address, a lot of inward looking that we all need to do and listening that we all need to do, and that's been the goal of this week. But before we go, we want to turn our attention to behavioral health and how we respond to emergency calls that have a behavioral health element. Um, We've heard a lot about this. Uh, Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller has even announced he wants to create a new department in city government, a community safety department. This would allow some of those emergency calls to be handled by social workers or mental health specialists, even homeless specialists, instead of always sending police officers out with uh, guns on their hip and other um, defensive uh, batons and tasers and um, all those other things that can really escalate situations that um, unnecessarily, there's been a lot of discussion about that, so we're going to hear about that and what our folks think about that and what other best practices are sort of out there in terms of rethinking the whole processes and and rationale behind how we handle some of these emergency calls. And after that, you will hear a little further discussion we had with them after our taping. Um, And again, we appreciate everybody's time and efforts this week uh, to share their thoughts with us, and we look forward to hearing from more of you in the future. If you've got suggestions of issues we didn't talk about, people we should be talking to, uh, especially we want to, again, have an eye towards bringing people together on these issues. If there's programs in other states, way other communities are looking at these issues, we want to hear about that. If there are people who drastically disagree with some of the folks we had on the show this week, we want to hear that as well. So reach out to us, head to the website, newmexicoandfocus.org. You can hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, any of those places. We want to hear from you. Uh, We want to, again, start this conversation, keep it rolling, and, um, and so that requires you to help us out and to contribute as well. We appreciate all that. And with that, we'll leave you uh, with this last segment, and we will tune in to you again next week on New Mexico in Focus and the podcast as we really ramp up into the 2020 elections. Thank you, as always, for listening, and we'll see you again next week. A lot has been made recently about how police officers are often asked to respond to calls that they aren't really trained to handle namely people with behavioral health issues. We wanted to dive into that conversation as well and look at a new proposal by Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller to change how the city handles those types of calls. On Zoom with me now is Dr. Tom Elena, a community and organization psych- uh, psychologist. Also with us is Wayne Lindstrom, Vice President of the Western US for RI International, which offers crisis health recovery and consulting services. Wayne is also the former director of the State Division of Behavioral Health, if he looks just a little bit familiar to you. And also with me is clinical social worker, Fraser Wilson. Thank you all for joining me for this discussion. Dr. Lennon, let me start with you first here. Mayor Keller recently announced his desire to create a new community safety department within APD. The idea is pretty simple. We all sort of know what, what this is about. Instead of sending police and fire to basically all 911 calls, you'd instead use social workers, homeless advocates, and other non-firearm wielding individuals to deal with calls they're prepared to handle. So Dr. Olena, this sounds like a shift in the right direction, but you feel like it's the wrong approach, right? 
that is avoid that it's avoiding the real issue of culture with an APD. Do I have that correct? Well, I think it's a both end gene. I don't think it's mm -hmm. an either or. I, I okay. think move is a really good move in the right direction in terms of, you know, really beginning to use the professionals who are skilled in the types of things that social workers that uh, drug and alcohol specialists can do and taking that off the place of police. However, what I will say is it does require some systemic change uh, inside of our justice systems, most particularly the police. So it's going to change. Uh, it's going to change in a lot of uh, a number of different areas, and I can get into more detail perhaps mm -hmm. in a bit. Mm -hmm. Wayne Lindstrom, you know, creating a new department or a new policy is not the same as creating a new culture. It's not. It's not even close. You know, that's what a lot of folks are after here when you really kind of strip it down, just a real refinement of the culture inside a police department. How would this work if there are two departments handling emergency calls? Who's actually in charge in this scenario? Well, I think it's really important to uh, provide a broader context mm -hmm. uh, to this discussion. Um, the FCC has approved 988 as being the new national uh, behavioral health slash suicide a crisis line. Uh, this is similar to what we went through back in the 60s when 911 was first introduced. Mm -hmm. And uh, legislation just passed this week in the U.S. Congress, and assuming the president signs it, um, this will go into law uh, and there will be uh, an allocation attached to it, and states will have the opportunity uh, to decide statutorily how they want to integrate into this new uh, national initiative. And why this is critical is because we've never had in behavioral health a, para, a, a, a system parallel to a 911 emergency call. In some mm -hmm. jurisdictions, dispatch a police car, a, a fire truck, uh, an EMS squad, et cetera. It's highly inefficient. And if you think of somebody who's suicidal, who has a trauma history, you bring out all these vehicles with sirens blaring and lights flashing, et cetera. It is not the most inviting way to respond uh, to individuals in, in crisis situations. Mm -hmm. So being able to have a call center, we do have uh, the New Mexico crisis and access line, um, but we don't have some of the uh, technological adaptations that are available to be able to dispatch mobile crisis teams that can be made up of a clinician and somebody with lived experience who knows that know how to de-escalate situations, et cetera, and not involving the police unless there's a real public safety concern. And that ends up being the minority of the, of the cases. So I think that what's going on nationally and what it is that we've learned about what really works in these situations, a lot of this, we can take police, uh, law enforcement out of the equation. Mm -hmm. Frazier Wilson, let me ask you to pick up on that. Um, are there any examples out there across the country that we could look to where there's incorporating of mental health and emergency response and even crime reduction? Have, have we got any data on this so far? Not, not that I know of. Um, I mean, I only, only can speak from my own professional experience. Um, when I was in Arizona, uh, for example, um, I was working for the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community and building a, a community drug port, uh, port program, and which involved the, the police department of that community. And so when, when something happened, um, 
the first the first thing wasn't to you know automatically process for uh you know incarceration uh you know uh, charges all that kind of thing it was more about uh being able to assess the situation especially if it was drugs or alcohol involved and and steering that person into into the, the behavioral health community for assessment uh, and, and, and what would be appropriate for treatment, that kind of thing. And also if there was something, if, if a law was broken, uh, that it would be able to um, uh, be set aside uh, as long as they completed the, the required treatment that came from the behavioral health division. And so, and we found a lot of success in that. You know, so much success that we, that we presented our, our, our findings to SAMHSA and, and Washington and, and you know, and got got our grant further to continue that program. So so that worked there, but that but the reason why I think that that really worked is because it was more of a sense of community. That that was the main thing. Right. We know Salt River, if you don't know, is is kind of like a closed community where there's uh, the community members, but there's also people that worked there from outside the community. But it was community buy-in that made that work. That made that work. And let, so, me, let, me ask, let me ask you on that quote, and Dr. Elena, I want you to pick up on this as well. That community support component, I, I got to imagine this has to be an element of trust built up before you can have that. Was that the case in your experience? Absolutely, Jane. Um, yeah. It's so critical, and I think it's one of the Achilles heels of APD at this point. Uh, in terms of uh, building deep trust, uh, it requires more than an afternoon in a convention center. It's, it's, and it requires more than what I'm seeing in the community policing councils, which was part of the consent decree. Mm -hmm. It really requires transparency. It requires a sense of vulnerability. And I think one of the other Achilles heels of APD, I would say, is it's an inability to acknowledge mistakes when they happen. Uh, and that's what builds trust. Right. Not defending the fort, not uh, you know deferring to something else. But a case in point of the recent uh, incident that happened over at the Albuquerque Museum. You know that yeah. was a tactical, uh, for, for, in the view of a lot of people, a blunder. Mm -hmm. and yet you can't build trust from inside the Albuquerque Museum, nor can you do it outside in flak jackets with uh, smoke grenades, and that doesn't build trust. If Albuquerque, if APD is going to be more of a guardian presence, it has to be preventative. And in addition to that, has to acknowledge mistakes when they happen. Mm -hmm. And so there's a level of vulnerability we need in our leaders. Yeah. Uh, Wayne Lindstrom, what do we say to folks out there who say, who hear these ideas and say, there's no way, there's no way you can have someone not armed, the way things can go a little wiggy here in Albuquerque sometimes. How do we get across that there is, in fact, just another way to do these things? There indeed is another way. And I, I certainly uh, refer everyone who's watching uh, to the SAMHSA, that's the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, National Behavioral Health Crisis Care Guidelines that were just issued in February. And it's based on the Crisis Now model. You can go to crisisnow.com. Um, that there really is a national model uh, that's accepted across the country uh, to be able to respond in a way that's much more effective and much more cost efficient on top of it. Um, and so for us to um, have spent this, the 60s 
responding to behavioral health crises in the community the way we have, it's obvious it's not working. And uh, the drug war, I think, has had a lot to do with that. And we could spend an entire show just on that subject alone. Mm -hmm. um, but we have found, for example, in Maricopa County, um, the, the greater Phoenix area, that uh, last year we were able to save the equivalent of 37 FTEs in terms of law enforcement time to put them back on the street right. with their public safety mission as opposed to either having to intervene in a behavioral health crisis under a bridge someplace or having to spend hours onboarding somebody in an emergency department. Right. And so there is indeed a better way to do this. And um, I would encourage um, Albuquerque and our communities throughout New Mexico uh, to uh, really uh, embrace the crisis now model and see what it truly has to offer. Mm -hmm. I have to say, you know, that's an interesting metric you just laid out because that's very tangible, that saving of FTEs. Because you, when you think about it, that can go a lot of different ways. There's taxpayer savings. There's, I mean, there's all kinds of savings, not, not just times. That's, that's kind of fascinating. It, it seems like a metric that could really open some eyes. Uh, Frazier Wilson, I got a, a question for you. Is this a moment for the social worker? Do we, do we have an opportunity here to elevate the, what's been really sort of a hidden warrior in the background element to Albuquerque's you know, crisis prevention here? Are we looking at something a little bit more elevated here? Well, I mean, if we're talking about changing the culture, I, I, I look at it like I kind of see the whole issue with uh, police departments across the country. Um, and when what we've been seeing on, on the news with all these things happening that, that where situations end in, in, uh, in some type of a, a violent act where life can be lost, someone's seriously injured, that kind of thing. And it's all because I believe, I believe it's about misunderstanding a situation. So... So, for example, when I go to work, when I work with someone, someone presents themselves to me for, for me to help them, I have to build trust with them first, first and foremost, or else it's not going to work. Okay. And so that's me understanding the issues without judgment. Okay. And I think that that's, that's the piece that's missing, not being able to understand the issue and also having judgment. And when you bring those two things in there, you know, it may not work out well. And so when you talk about bringing social workers into it, I'm, I'm thinking about like, okay, so are, are the police, I know the police department, New Mexico, Albuquerque Police Department has been working on on trying to interact with people with mental, with mental health issues in, in, a, in, a, in a more peaceful and, and, and humane way. Um, mm -hmm. I think we can all remember the incident that happened in the foothills where the, uh, the gentleman who suffered from schizophrenia and had a little pocket knife and he, he was killed for that. Right. And that shouldn't have, that shouldn't have happened, and that's that's not understood. You know, since, since that incident, you know, the police department is trying to do some work and and doing a better job at that. But it still comes down to yeah, learning more to, to understand the issue. Maybe talking to people like myself uh, um, can help with those type of interactions. Um, we we're thoroughly trained and and uh, and how to deescalate, how to understand things. We don't approach things with judgment, and you can feel that. People, right. people know that. When I, when I approach people and I talk with them, they, they know I'm, where I'm coming from automatically without me even saying a word. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and the, whole, you know, the whole thing about what, you know, having a gun, and of course, I think it, um, we don't even need to go in history. I, I mean, 
we can look at history and we can see what's been happening where people get harmed when people, when the police officers um, in general approach a situation and don't take the time to do that. Don't take the time to try to understand what's going on. And the other thing I wanted to say, just real quick, I just want to interject this about this whole thing about public safety. I think that that can be misconstrued just from the call alone. You know, a, a, a mother can be living with a son with schizophrenia, for example. He can be suffering from a, 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 an episode of psychosis, and that's witnessed by a neighbor right. who doesn't know them very well, and they make the call from their perspective. And then right then and there, the police officer can respond from the perspective of the person who made the call, and that can make everything go wrong because the person who made the call doesn't really know what's, what's, what's happening. I, I want to thank this group and all the participants this week for helping start these important conversations. There'll be more, much, more, much, much more to come here on New Mexico in Focus in the future weeks and months. As always, thanks for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus. I want to build on something Fraser's saying because I Please. think it goes to the business of organizational culture change. Mm-hmm. That is what APD is really going to have to work at are building strategic partnerships outside of, we have a tendency in New Mexico that when we have problems of crime increases, violence increases, our go-to thing is build bigger bureaucracies. That's what we do. We add more staff to systems. And we're not, I don't think we're moving laterally enough with community agencies, engaging them, you know, with people like social workers, such as being uh, uh, offered here with the community uh, uh, safety department. But really for them to look outside their own, you know, their own budgets. And the other thing I would say is that is not happening in New Mexico. We are not talking about social justice and we are not talking about power. We are not having those conversations. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing them all over the country beginning to happen. But I think it's an important one is to begin talking about how we use power, whether it's police. And the thing that also strikes me is the police are very visible right now. But there's an assumption right now that the rest of the system has got no unconscious bias. Judges, corrections, we're not even talking about these other agencies that contribute to things like the war on drugs, that contribute to over-incarceration, to uh, racial profiling. You know, we have to have larger conversations is my point. Mm -hmm. Is this a leadership issue? Does someone need to ring the bell here? Someone in elected office? Is it someone else? Well, we don't, I think what we have is, I hate to say this, I mean, it's a a gross generalization, but we don't have the leaders with the skill sets that we need today. We have bureaucrats and politicians that's what we have. Right. Leaders connote something very different to me, visionary, looking into the future. When we think about police departments, it's mostly very, uh, it, it's primarily tactical. It's primarily uh, re- reacting, but having a vision of the future and different skill sets. In other words, how do we do, you know, what we're reading from the literature now, what leaders need are vulnerability, mm-hmm. creating psychological safety, that's what we know from the from you know from the literature in corporations right now, and I think unless police can look outside their own silo to other areas, mm-hmm. I think we just recreate uh, and and, um, and yes, change is difficult. I will sure. add that. Sure. 
Hey, Wayne Lindstrom, I've got, a, I've got a question for you. I've been asking different folks in this, on this, these issues over the past few weeks. Does gender make a difference here when it comes to leadership? Are we, here's my context here. Are we at a moment here in the metro and, in this, and statewide, certainly, where perhaps maybe a woman at the top, meaning maybe perhaps chief of police, who knows where, how, might just bring a different sort of, of energy to this situation? Does that ring your bell in any, in any way? Um, it does. I think the world's been ruled too much for too long by by men, and in particular white men, mm -hmm. um, such as myself. Um, and this whole this whole area really is about how do we as a society address what has existed since the founding of this country, and it's all these inherent disparities and inequities economically, educationally, um, health disparities, etc. And we have never w been willing as, as a people uh, to even oftentimes acknowledge those inequities, let alone address them. We always seem to deal with this uh, around the edges. So whether it's the war on poverty, you know, coming out of the 60s, or what we do in terms of HUD with housing, etc., it, it really never addresses the core problems. And I think a key to all of this has got to do with the way we fund education. You can't have inner cities abandoned uh, by those uh, who have uh, the means and pay taxes and then have the tax base erode and then wonder why, you know, communities have inferior uh, schools and the kinds of graduation rates and achievement rates, et cetera, that they end up having. Um, and to me, that would be one of the first things I think we need to solve. Mm -hmm. That's a very I appreciate good that. The name California jumps out at me suddenly. <laughs> that's, that's the route they took uh, some years Gene, ago. What I, what I would add, Gene, Please. and mm -hmm. I remember the night you were in our, in our class at UNM in the mm -hmm. community circle, where yep. some of my students confronted the police we need structures, we need venues where there's a little bit more truth telling, right. not just exchanging information, which is what the community policing councils are really all about, where the cops sit around the perimeter of the room. I've presented in several of these uh, police community, uh, community policing councils, and you have the community sitting there in rows, and then you have the cops sitting around the perimeter. You might have one up front, but we need venues. We need structures that are not town hall meetings where people are yelling at each other and no one's listening, but we need deep listening. We need truth telling, deep listening. Uh, and those are the types of structures that are missing right now. Right, exactly right. Hey, Frazier, I got another question for you. You know, you know when I think about police unions, uh, others are always saying, hey, we need more money for this. We need more money for that. What about behavioral health specialists? Is this a time for folks to eat, actually say, look, I need to get paid. You know, I'm doing a dangerous job here. I'm working for the public's best interest. I, 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 got, I just got to think there's a new dawning on uh, potentially coming on how behavioral health specialists are valued. And I mean, in their pocketbook as well. Is, 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 there, is there some kind of talk about this in circles that you're working inside? Well, the, the main talk that, that um uh, me and, and my friends and colleagues have are, are about the lack of services that are available for the people that, that need them. Yeah. Uh, for example, we got a, a young man into um, uh, into 
a detox center right there, there on Zuni. It's called it's called Mats, like the Metropolitan. Um, it's, it's a treatment center, but there there I I believe that they're grossly underfunded. A lot of people don't want to go there because uh, they say it looks it's almost like going to jail, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing where I had a problem with trying to get someone over there is um, you know it's, it's, they they do a triage with you know preg- pregnant women first. And then it goes all the way down to you know to men, single men. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- there's there's a lack of, of uh, treatment centers for um, uh, alcohol and substance abuse for adults and for teenagers. Um, as you guys probably know, uh, we had like Aguares, for example. They, they they specialize in treating teens and their families. Yeah. Closed down, you know. And so we've been seeing this all all around the place. And and many people, um, at least that come across my path in in the past, and um, you know they may be uh, uh, using Centennial Care. And you know, there's places that don't accept that. At least, you know, the very good places like uh, the Taos Treatment Center up in Taos, they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't take Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, unless you have the means, uh, you're not going to get the treatment. You're not going to get the help. And, and I see, I see that as being a, a, a big problem. Yeah. Anybody want to pick up on that, Dr. Orlando or, or Wayne? Is is there? How do we how do we start to budget for these things and take budgeting seriously across all channels to sort of get to our goals here? Doctor, I'll start with you, Dr. Orlando. Well, I'm thinking, you know, I think Frazier's right on. And I'm thinking that this is what we need leaders who are more balanced. They have to think outside their own silos. And if we, they can't think across these disciplines, mm-hmm. and that's really what we're talking about here. We need cross disciplinary approaches, not what we have in the criminal justice system. There are a series of silos, the police. I mean, I even see it in a program like law enforcement assisted diversion, where you've got public health, you've got treatment, uh, you've got uh, police, and yet they all speak three different languages. Right. So uh, until we can begin to have leaders that can see across these systems and think as systems people, rather than what's in my own political interest, how do I get resources for my people? Right. And really begin to think more expansively about things like that and seeing that things, I just have worked with too many really creative, innovative, cross-disciplinary police chiefs who basically say things like they would never dream of implementing a program in a place like the international zone unless the community is directly involved, unless the community was at the planning table, unless the community was in in the implementation stages, problem solving, every part of it. Here, it's mostly top down. We're going to tell you the way it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I saw that in when a colleague and I just finished a white paper on the opioid issue here and the application of this uh, law enforcement uh, assisted diversion model. And some communities are doing it better than others. Uh, but quite frankly, we need leaders who can think more systemically uh, rather than just politically about their own silos. Right. Wayne, go ahead and pick up on that. I mean, you're in a big place, Maricopa County. It's massive compared to you know, same problem, silos, all that kind of a thing? Well, not in um, the, the, the the crisis care domain, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we have tools here in New Mexico now that, you know, we had been lacking in the past. So we, we've had statutory authority, uh, we've had licensing regulations and, um, a payment mechanism through Medicaid, and we are a Medicaid expansion state. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
we, as a result of this, have a variety of, of services and ways of integrating care um, that a lot of states would love to, to have. We just haven't yet leveraged all that's available to us. So, for example, in Maricopa County, uh, we have crisis facilities um, that will take anybody who's presented at the door. 82% of those who present are from the back of a police car in shackles in Maricopa County. And we guarantee the police that within three and five minutes, they're back on the street. And we don't care if this is somebody who's actively psychotic, somebody who's extremely agitated because they're on methamphetamines um, uh, or whatever, or they're actively suicidal. Um, and we have an expression in our business that's peers first and peers last. Nobody meaningfully engages and relates and can build trust than the person who's been there. Nice. So the first person who enters that sally port when there's a police drop-off is not a clinician. It's somebody with lived experience who's in recovery themselves. And they can say to that person, you know, this has got to be God awful for you. Um, here you were having, you know, whatever was going on with you. And then what happens, you end up arrested, you end up in shackles, you end up in the back of a police car. And now here you are, you don't know where you are, you don't know what to anticipate. And I know exactly what you're going through because three years ago, I was in the exact same place. And now here I am, gainfully employed, active in recovery, which automatically not only instills credibility, but provides a tremendous sense of, of hope because they're modeling that recovery is indeed possible. Mm -hmm. um, so we have the ability now to open crisis triage centers in New Mexico uh, that start out as crisis receiving centers and then uh, also have crisis stabilization uh, bed capability. Um, and that's just beginning to be implemented uh, there in uh, Bernalillo County at the old Turquoise Lodge facility. It's a 16-bed facility um, that's uh, been licensed and is working on Medicaid payment as we speak. There's been a crisis triage center built in um, Doniana County uh, in 2013 and has sat vacant all these years. Hmm. And RI International, uh, the company that I work for, just was awarded the contract to get that uh, program implemented because we now have the system alignment to be able to uh, support financially operating a facility like that that accepts everybody and and police um, you know just have to count on a hundred percent of the time that if they're going to drop somebody off they're going to be taken in right. and they're going to be adequately cared for yeah, and so this, this is just something that um, is a foundational aspect for us to be able to build a, a crisis continuum of care in the state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we definitely need more of that. And, uh, you know, we have uh, community service workers. They're, they're, they're not trained clinicians, uh, but they do a lot of intervention out there with, you know, with their own caseload. And a lot of them work with people that are se severely emotionally disabled and they, and they get out there and they handle situations without police involvement or they be no, usually no matter what it is. And so I think we need more of those people involved and ask you a question about uh, uh, their salary. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it needs to be where they can, you know, sustain 
uh, you know, decent housing and, and transportation and all that kind of thing. So that would be uh, very, very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I, I need to go. It's good talking with and meeting all of you guys. Yes. But I got to get out of here. I have someone that's waiting on me. Okay. Now, now we have another one back right up to this. No sweat. <laughs> all right. Thank you for your time. Thank you, you guys too. Because I think it's really important. See you, Fraser. You guys. Right. Uh, is really beginning to use the community differently. Mm -hmm. uh, not just professionals. I mean, the professionals have a place, but what right. I would also add is uh, what we frequently hear are how caseloads for the public defender, for the prosecutor, for pre-pross diversion are so high. Why can't some of this adjudication happen in neighborhoods for low-level crimes instead Thank of increasing you. caseloads? Right. Using the community, using community accountability models, the models are all there. Yeah. But engaging the community to empower the community to make decisions, as opposed to the system, will fix your problems. Mm -hmm. Not a doubt. Boy, I got to say, as a wrap-up, Wayne, I, I, you know, the idea of an Albuquerque situation like you described in Maricopa County, where cops can be out the door five minutes later after a drop-off. Woof. That would be huge here. That would be enormous here. I mean, I couldn't imagine the public having a problem with that, you know, when you really explain it to them. That's amazing. And, and a wonderful goal to try to get to, for sure. Well, so. well you might think about for a, a future show, inviting Margarita Chavez, who uh, replaced Katrina Hotram in overseeing behavioral health for the county, uh, to talk about what they're, what they're building. I, I think that's an excellent idea because I think you you what you laid out would be news for a lot of people and that's what we're here to do. So exactly. Guys, thank you so much.